Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Last week, we read about the extreme generosity that existed among the earliest Christians as they both financially supported the advance of the gospel as well as those within the Christian community who had various needs. Some even went so far as to sell property and to bring the proceeds to the apostles so that they might distribute them according to the various needs of the early church. And one such person was a man named Barnabas, who we're going to see a lot more of as we continue through our journey through the book of Acts. But here's what our passage from last week said. This is from Acts 4, starting in verse 32. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Two Sundays ago, my family and I had to miss church because we were quarantining. I'm sure that at this point, two years into COVID, uh, you're familiar with this reality. And so, yes, the sickness was in our home, and so we did our uh, best to keep away from each other, but also to keep away from anybody else so that we didn't get anybody sick. And so uh, we had to miss that Sunday. And so while you were here uh, hearing about Recovery Church from Phil Dvorak, my family and I decided we were going to have church together in our living room. And so we opened up our Bibles and we studied this very passage. And as we were making observations of the text, one of my sons brought up that since Barnabas is mentioned by name here, his actions must have been significant. And I think he made a good point. After all, no other generous givers are mentioned by name. We see that from time to time this happened, and yet only one person is named in the passage that we just read. And so I believe that part of Luke's intention is to introduce his readers to Barnabas, because we're going to see a lot more of him. I think also that Barnabas stands in stark contrast to the couple that we're going to read about together today. And so his example of Barnabas further highlights the sin that we're about to read about on the part of a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. So if you have your Bible with you, please open up with me to Acts chapter 5. We're going to start in the very first verse. Acts 5, starting in verse 1. And the text says this. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? 
And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You know, I often hear the argument that God acts differently between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, more than a few critics who thought themselves clever have said, it seems like God grew a conscience in the New Testament. But the truth of the matter is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the holy and righteous God who doesn't sin, who doesn't make mistakes, who doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed, and who's exactly the same between the two testaments. In fact, he's always been the same, as this account clearly demonstrates. And if such an account seems rather heavy and somewhat sobering to us, I'd remind you that it was also heavy and sobering for the Christians who were present on that day as these events unfolded literally right before them. Again, we see this in our text. Verse 11 says, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Yeah, I'd say so. So the three questions I want to resolve for us today as we look at this passage together are these. What is going on here? Why might God have engaged so strongly? And finally, what ought we to take from this historical event? So let's begin with the first one. What is going on here? As we've seen the whole church, all of the early Christians were giving generously in support of the mission and in support of the needy among the early church. And yet among those early Christians were some who were willing to sell off houses and land and to bring the proceeds to the apostles for distribution as needed. Remember, this was never compulsory. This was a choice on the part of those who had means and were among the most highly committed to these important causes. Now, I say that because there were Christians among them who didn't have means. They didn't have houses. They didn't have property, but they were absolutely committed. And then there were those who were committed, but not willing to sell their houses. And then there were those who were deeply committed to the advance of the gospel and to supporting those in need, and who also had the means to do so. And so, on occasion, these people came forward and gave in abundance, generously, that the mission would go forth and that there would be no needy persons among them. And one such person that we read about in this text was Barnabas, who sold the field that he owned and he brought the entirety of the money, every last cent, to the apostles. And then there was Ananias and Sapphira, the couple we read about today. We don't know much about them. 
And I think that many of the speculations that people make about them are often at least a little bit off the mark. For instance, it's easy to look at them and think, well, they weren't really Christians. But why would we think that? Is it because they sinned? I have a feeling that if we shined a little light into each of our lives, we'd all be guilty of the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, at least at some point in our Christian lives. So is it perhaps because God punished them with death? Well, where in the scriptures does it say that non-Christians parading as Christians will drop dead? How about non-Christians parading as Christians donating money they received for selling their land? Or perhaps it's the old God wouldn't do that to a Christian argument. In which case, I'd again ask the question, where in Scripture does it say that? Give me the book, give me the chapter, give me the verse. It's not in there. In fact, I would suggest to you that Ananias and Sapphira were Christians. New Christians, to be sure, but Christians nonetheless. They heard and they responded to the gospel. They were among the earliest Christian, uh, Christians in this community in Jerusalem. They believed in the mission. They believed in advancing the gospel and helping those in need. The way Luke ordered this narrative leads me to believe that Ananias and Sapphira saw or heard or were aware of Barnabas' donation. They knew that he had sold a field and, they had given all, and that he had given all the money to the apostles. I'd even suggest that it's possible that they truly set out to do the exact same thing that Barnabas did, to sell their property and to give all of it to the mission. And yet we read in verse 3, Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? In other words, somewhere along the way, temptation set in. Perhaps he thought something like this, What if we did sell our property but kept some of the money for ourselves and then told everyone that we gave it all to the mission. We'd look great in front of everyone, and we'd also help the cause, and we'd have money for ourselves. And herein lies the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Their sin was not that they didn't give everything. Their sin was that they didn't give everything, but they told the church that they had. And in doing so, they thought that they were only lying to human beings, only lying to Peter and the other apostles, only lying to their brothers and sisters in Christ. But in fact, Peter makes it clear that their sin wasn't just against human beings, but against God. Our Kent Hughes in his commentary on Acts makes an interesting observation about this event. He writes, there was a much better way open to Ananias He could have said something like this. Peter and my friends, Sapphira and I were going to give everything, but we decided to keep some for our own needs. We'd like to do the same thing as Barnabas did, but we do not feel we can at this time. If they had been honest, God would have used and multiplied what they did give. Wow. How do we know this would have been possible? How do we know this would have been acceptable? Consider Peter's words in verses 4 and 5. He says this, Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. 
In other words, it was his property. It was Ananias and his wife Sapphira's uh, property before it was sold. They didn't have to sell it. And it was his money after. So even after they sold the property, they didn't have to give any of the money to the church. There was no compulsion here to give it away or to do anything with it. The decision to give and to deceive was his, and his wife Sapphira was complicit in it. And as a result, they both died. Which leads us to our second question. Because let's face it, that seems like a pretty strong punishment. So why might God have engaged so strongly? Why might God have engaged so strongly in this instance? Let me begin by saying that the, the sense of this passage is, in fact, that God punished Ananias and Sapphira by taking their lives. It wasn't that they dropped dead from guilt, or as, a or as coincidence would have it, they both just happened to have heart attacks as these events unfolded. No, the sense of the text is that God is the one who did it. So it begs the question, why might God have engaged so strongly in this instance? And I think that we really want to know the answer to this. Because if we're being honest, we're all guilty of the same type of sin in some way, at some time, to some degree. We've all led others to believe something about us that wasn't quite true. To make ourselves look better, even in the church. Maybe especially in the church. And I don't think any of us wants to go the way of Ananias and Sapphira. So what happened here? I would suggest to you that God is disciplining the early church. He's training the early church. He's forming the early church, and he's protecting, us, protecting it from being led astray by Satan in this matter, perhaps even protecting it from going far away from him. Jeremy Taylor suggests that God's actions here are a sanctifying discipline. In other words, a discipline that is spiritually forming for the early church. R. Kent Hughes suggests that God's response to this sin was so severe because this was a pivotal time in church history. And so God had to engage in just this way to keep things on course as he intended. It's easy to believe that God is completely encapsulated by one of his attributes, love. This is how the world today seems to picture God, as if God can be completely defined by only one of his attributes, the attribute of love. It's easy to imagine that all of God's actions, therefore, must be filtered through that one particular attribute, his love. However, in the same way that God is perfectly loving, God is also perfectly just. He's perfectly holy. And sometimes justice and holiness don't feel as nice as love. Yet I'd argue that even God's justice and God's holiness are never exhibited apart from his love, as if God could divorce himself from one of his attributes. In fact, I would suggest that if Peter was right and Satan was trying to tear apart the fledgling Christian movement here, then God's actions were loving because they preserved the church from an attack that could have derailed it. And so even this passage that we read about, and it strikes us, it shocks us perhaps, at how, how strongly God engages, and perhaps his justice was part of it. Perhaps his holiness was a part of it. His love, I believe, certainly was as well. I'd also suggest that if Ananias and Sapphira were, in fact, Christians, 
It would have been better for God to take their lives and allow them to enjoy the afterlife with him than to continue down their course of deception, potentially even abandoning their faith. We have no idea what would have happened with Ananias and Sapphira had they gotten away with it and continued on after having gotten away with this deception. Maybe they would have walked even farther away and farther away and farther away and abandoned God in the church. Perhaps God did them a mercy in taking their lives in this moment. We can't know that. But we do know the nature and the character of God. In our culture, we tend to hold God up to our modern sensibilities. We expect him to conform to what we deem acceptable or unacceptable. We relegate the wrath of God to that Old Testament time before God grew a conscience. The truth of the matter is, God is the one who sets the standards. He is the very standard of right. He is the very standard of justice. He is the very standard of goodness. He is the very standard of love. But sometimes we don't understand it. And especially us today, perhaps being formed by our culture, our modern sensibilities, and we dare to judge God's actions by our standards instead of recognizing that he is the standard. And so sometimes we don't understand it. I love Paul's words in Romans 3, 4. He says, let God be true and every human being a liar. Let God be true and every human being a liar. Now, in this passage in Romans, he's reconciling the truth of God's word with the reality that human beings often fail to do what it says. And so their failing to do what it says does not change the fact that God's word is true. And so I would suggest that the same principle applies if God is the standard of good and of love and justice but we don't understand it or we find it hard to accept. Let God be true and every human being a liar. Well, I've alluded to the fact that we have all sinned in similar ways to Ananias and Sapphira, and I've implied that God was severe in this particular instance because of his purposes in forming and protecting the church at this early stage. And so this begs the question, what ought we to take from this historical event? How does this apply to us today? Have you ever lied, implied, or allowed someone to believe something in order to make yourself look good? Maybe you let someone believe you donated more than you did to the church. Maybe you act like you've got it all together when you're with your church friends, but you walk around with dark secrets that you're unwilling to address. Maybe you encourage someone to give up something bad while you engage in that same thing in secret or something like it. Or conversely, maybe you exhort people to do good, but you don't do it yourself, but you let other people believe that perhaps you do. It's easy to deceive even ourselves with this sort of thing. We could tell ourselves that it's, it's just a little white lie. It's not hurting anyone. It's really no big deal. The problem is that this passage makes it clear we don't just sin against other human beings when we do this. We sin against God as well. Now for me, I'm glad that God doesn't just snuff people out for this sin because to be honest with you, I would have been dead long ago. But coming to terms with this passage means taking an honest look at our own hearts, our own thoughts, our own actions. 
God may not opt to end our lives for such sins. However, deception and pride have a way of wreaking havoc in one's life and in the life of the church. And we should be grateful that we have an opportunity to do something that Ananias and Sapphira didn't have time to do. To identify this within ourselves, to confess it before the Lord, and to repent of it. Listen to this. How amazing is this promise that God makes to us in 1 John 1.9? He says this through the Apostle John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I want to read this again. 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God doesn't reject us for our sins. Even in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, if they truly were Christians, then they are with the Lord right now in bliss. God doesn't reject us for our sins. But God's mercy goes far beyond just not rejecting us when we sin. He also promises to hear our confessions, to forgive, and to purify us so that we no longer fall in these areas. Again, verse 11. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. How many cautionary tales do we have in our day? How many times has someone else's undoing kept us from making the same mistakes? Perhaps this is the very reason that God had Luke record this event in the book of Acts. And so may we be found wise, faithful, and obedient in how we respond to what Scripture teaches us right here. May we live with authenticity before the Lord and before our brothers and sisters. Because only when we're vulnerable with one another, when we're honest with one another, when we're authentic before one another, can we together move forward in our sanctification and in our mission together in this world, honoring the Lord above all as we put him on display? Praise be to God.